0: I talked on the invitation. I know some of you were not here. I tried to sort of send it out. If people were missing, I might have forgotten. We posted on Facebook. You can even go to YouTube. I don't know how to do that. Dan just sends it to me. You can ask him, or maybe you already know how. But we talked about the invitation, about how we can say yes to God, but just like the Israelites were always doing, you know, they were always going, all that the Lord has said, we will do. But then, They would get distracted or derailed or deterred, just like we do, or talk themselves into doing something else entirely. And so we can say, yes, Lord, I'm going, and then go a different route. We can RSVP yes and never make it to the party. And so we talked about doors that actually do open us to the demonic. And when I say demonic, it's not always ooky-spooky. It's just off from where God wants you. It's just a place that God is not. Just a place that He is not, His presence is not there, and that is not His best and highest for you. And so doors that open us up to the demonic, and we talked about on Dr. Henry Malone's book, Shattering Strongholds, disobedience unforgiveness, emotional trauma, inner vows and judgments, and curses. And we gave examples of every one of them. And, of course, you figured into my curse example, Cammie, and the, the victory that we had and when an Easy detected that a curse had been said over Cammie. And so we broke it, and the results of that curse were immediately broken. And some of you were in the room that night. You know, the prophetic, even if it's confirmed, even if Ed Trout comes and prophesies something over you, that is no guarantee that it's going to happen and you're like, "Ooh, what do you mean?" And people like to blame God when things don't happen. But you see, the prophetic, John has said it clearly, are invitations to our future. They're invitations just like a an invitation to a party, and you can RSVP yes, but make choices that get you over to no and you never get there. And so we have to make choices that get us to the place that God has invited us to. And People we know are always extending invitations to us. And I talked about how, you know, even people that are in a bad place and they start talking to you and you're in church and you want to be loving and you want to be kind and you want to be thought of as understanding and you also want to minister to people and they can come to you and they can tell you their sad story and really God is trying to get them out of pity and out of rejection and out of shame, but you're just so agreeing with them that you've actually said yes to their pity party and you become a guest at the party that God is not even throwing. And then the devil is always extending invitations, invitations to think on this. Think about that. Ooh, ooh, think what's going to happen. If you have that symptom, ooh, it might mean this. Look it up on Google. Oh, my God, Google says you're going to die. Okay, and and, and so, you know, the devil is extending invitations all day long for you to think in a way that God is not saying. So today I want to follow up just a little bit. And even though I'll tell you my title, we're going to end on a little lighter note, but my title is Deliver Us From Evil. And little did I know that Alan was going to begin our worship set with the Our Father because deliver us from evil is not some ooky, spooky phrase, but it's simply a phrase from the most recited prayer in all the world. And so let's go to Luke chapter 11, if you want to look there, or I'll just paraphrase it quickly. One of the disciples made a request of Jesus in Luke chapter 11. And Jesus was praying in a certain place, the Bible says. And one of the disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John also taught his disciples. Now I had to laugh when I read it because it's sort of like, they got it, can't we too? You know, nobody wants to miss out on anything. It sounded a little, a little bit like that competition thing. But Jesus answered. And he said, When you pray, say, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. On earth, as it is in heaven, give us day by day, the New King James says, our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who's indebted to us. No excuses, no reasons you aren't supposed to. Nobody's done anything so wrong, you're exempt. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Deliver us from evil. And I can promise you that you will not be a partaker of all that the kingdom has for you, You will lack power at some level. You won't bring full glory to the Father until and unless you learn how to stay delivered from evil. You got to stay delivered from evil. That's what you're praying. Deliver us from evil. Everything that's not like you, God, that's what evil is. Now, I looked up delivered in Webster's Dictionary. Delivered meant to set free, first definition. And then they actually quote Matthew 6.13 for their example out of the Bible. And so, for many years, let me tell you how evil can work. We had Wednesday night prayer, and we may have it again at some times. We we rotate with some of the things we do as far as our schedule. And We had Wednesday night prayer, and prayer is just simply communication with God. And so, you can have intercession. You can have declaration and proclamation. You can have supplication. You can have confession. You can have repentance, many forms of prayer. But sometimes, in the midst of prayer, you will actually get revelation revelation and so one night a revelation came through several of our team members that exposed an area that God wanted to deal with has God ever done anything like that to you like you're praying you're loving God then he tells you something you need to change and you're like wait God I-, I wanted you to change everything around me but let's not deal with me like I- I, you know um, I-, I don't don't get that close I, I want that change that changed that changed but God says oh no 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 there's something. I want to change in you, something he wants to deal with. And you're just feeling good that you're at the prayer meeting, and and then he says something is wrong with you. And see, some people go into condemnation, but see, if God says something's not like him in me, I don't condemn myself, I'm just going, get it out, and then I can be more like you. Get it out, because he's in the transformation business. See, he is in the change business. He will change you. He doesn't even say you have to change yourself. He just says, agree with me, and I can help this change come about. And so some of you in this room were actually there that night, and we had a group of Generation Jesus leaders in that prayer room, and they were very young, 19, 20, 21. They they were spearheading this amazing revival here in Fort Bend County, and it's sort of heady for young people. Easy was, you know, networking the whole county and getting the judge and the police chief and getting stadiums for them to minister in. And it was a big deal. I mean, we'd walk into stores and people would go, oh, They're from Generation Jesus. And so that's sort of a lot for a young person. And God said to us that night, I want to deal with impure motive, selfish ambition, pride, vanity, and arrogance in your midst. And we're like, what? In, in our midst? And who is it? And it's like, in us. It's, it's in us. Oh, gosh. And like, can we just get it out right now? And, and then he even said, prophetically, because of these things, you have come against the very government of God. That, those are scary words. Arrogance, a feeling or impression of superiority, exaggerating one's importance. It manifests itself often in presumptuous claims. Now, Sometimes we're so afraid that we're not going to amount to anything, and we're not going to be able to do anything, and we, we can't get to where we hope we're going to get. See, we, we boast uh, and, and say we're going to do grandiose things so that we'll feel better about ourself. And And see, you have people, the devil is the master of ditches. So you have the people over here acting all arrogant. And then you have the people over here feeling like they really can't ever do anything, and they really are a failure, and nothing they ever do is going to amount to anything. And so he manages to keep us in ditches that never, ever, ever are on the road that God is on. Never. And so if arrogance is feeling like we're superior, like superior to who? Well, we might feel like we're superior to people even today that are less educated than we are. We might feel like we're superior to people who are less prosperous than we are. Are less spiritually astute, if we really are, or less whatever than we are. But see, maybe God sees those people as just less arrogant than we are. And so there are times when other people might just say, oh, I'm full of fear. And God might go, there's fear in the midst of you, or there's shame in the midst of you. There's timidity in the midst of you. There, there's things in the midst of you. There's rejection on the inside of you. Rejection is in the midst of you. you're like, but I I don't know what to do with it. And God says, just admit it, and then I'm going to help you quit it. (laughs) But see, when we're in any of these things that are not qualities and characteristics that are the heart of God for us, we really are opposite of the government of God because he doesn't want those things to govern us. He wants to govern us. He doesn't want those things to control us. He wants us to give control to him. So it's hard sometimes to believe that something ungodly is operating in our midst when we honestly are sincere about pursuing God, pursuing his purposes. Like, God, I love you. And now you're saying something is wrong with me. But you see, we are the righteousness of God in Christ. We can come to the Father. We are not kept out. The veil is rent. We can come boldly to the throne of grace for mercy and help in time of need. Yes, But in the midst of it all, he's transforming us. And so sometimes he identifies things so that he can get them out of us because he needs our agreement. He needs our agreement to work in us. So let's look at Matthew 16. And we're going to start at verse 13, and I'm going to go to 19. Matthew 16, verse 13 through 19. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, Some say John the Baptist. Some say Elijah, others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter and on this rock of revelation, I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys, just like John talked about, the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. That's quite That's quite an accolade from Jesus. Like, that's quite a little speech for God to say to you. And it's like quite a pat on the back. But in my Bible, all I do is turn one page, one page and three lines down, and I get to a couple of verses where Jesus and Peter are talking again. And I referred to this last week. And Peter says, oh, no, no, you don't need to go die on the cross. You don't need to do that, God. You don't need to to leave us, Jesus. And Jesus looks at him and says, get thee behind me, Satan. One page in my Bible, he's saying, upon this rock of revelation, I will build my church, and I will give you the keys of the kingdom. And turn the page, get thee behind me, Satan. And so there is mixture in all of us. There is mixture in all of us. We need not be afraid of the fact that there can be mixture. Because right there, page to page, we have a reward and a rebuke because of mixture. And God is so wise and God is so his manifold wisdom that he can deal with more than one thing at a time. And so when we think of mixture, it's hard to separate something that has been mixed really well. If I take eggs, flour sugar and milk, and mix it really well, blend it up. And then I go, take the egg out. Take the egg out for me now. Well, it's hard to even see the egg anymore. It's hard to even identify it, much less get it out. Sometimes it's hard to extricate or separate things from our own lives because they're so woven into the fabric of our life, of who we are. And we think, this is just who I am. And God says, oh, no, 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 it's not who I created you to be. I'm not leaving you there. That's not how I made you, and I'm not leaving you there. And so some things are so familiar to us, it's hard for us to even see it. Now, when the Bible refers to evil in Ephesians 6.12, it mentions rulers, principalities, and powers. Satan has a hierarchy. Its purpose is to oversee and control events in the world, thus you and me. Like any hierarchy, different parts have different functions. And so there's rulers. And in Matthew 16, Jesus speaks of the gates of hell. And, you know, you think, is that a wrought iron gate? Is that a cyclone fence with barbed wire? Is that electronic? John did a great teaching on the gates one time, but we're not going into that today. But in Bible times, the leaders of the city sat at the gates, and they made decisions at the gates, discerning, governing a town. So the modern equivalent of gate Would be maybe a a place of authority, city hall, Congress, the Oval Office, any place of authority, the board of the CEO and and his um, officers of a corporation. So Satan always wants to come against the place of authority because he even came against God. He undermined God's authority to Eve. He always tries to undercut authority. Notice that. And he will infiltrate authority structures because he wants to rule. He wants to be in charge. That is his great desire. And he wants to be in control. And he manages to do this the same way he always has. He really doesn't have any new strategies. He doesn't have any new schemes. He tries the same things over and over. If he tries to hit you in a weak place and you get victory over it, three years later, he'll try to enter that same door if you let him. And you have to know how to resist. And we talked last week about the fact that you have to pull down strongholds, that you have to resist every evil thought. There are things we have to do. So Satan will come, and by the wrong, foolish, or selfish choices of a man or a woman, he will try to start ruling. Authority structures exist everywhere we look, whether we like it or not, whether we think they're even operating in a good way or not. There's our national government. There's regional governments. There's local government. There's schools. There's businesses, churches. There's garden clubs. There's sports teams. There's families. There's authority structures in all of these. So if gates refer to the authority in a place... Then walls refer to the biblical symbol for protection of authority. Where there is a lack of authority or a lack of submission to authority, there is rebellion. And where there is rebellion, Satan rules. So things that destroy walls. Godless leadership. And I know that in our country, there have been many changes over the last decades, and our leadership is not like it used to be. Even the morals and and principles that, that people operate by have changed dramatically and drastically so that the church is now in a minority position rather than the church used to operate along some of the same moral code that the government did, that the school did. And now it's like there's an opposition. So godless leadership. Number two, neglect. Husbands who don't lead, parents who don't parent. Teachers who don't teach, pastors who don't pastor. See, many walls have come down in our country. Number three, in most cases, however, rebellion is simply exhibited as a choice by a man or a woman. Just a choice. Without you going to anybody else, you can do it all by yourself. 1 Samuel 15:23, 23, the Bible says, Rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as the sin of iniquity or idolatry. So rebellion is basically an attitude of the heart that says, I don't need rules. See, and if you start not trusting everybody that made the rules, you think you don't need any. Don't tell me what to do. And see, he whom the sun sets free is free indeed, but yet we submit our lives to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so there's an understanding that even in that freedom, there's a submission. I'm not going to be controlled by anybody. And if you've been hurt, are traumatized by authority figures there is usually a resistance to even godly authority and so you too can operate against the government of God because of your hurt or your pain I want to be my own person I don't want to be stifled you know I'm creative and people don't understand me they don't get me I need to be me we make a lot of excuses and we defend rebellion in all kind of ways Even I'm an American, you know, and I'm patriotic and, you know, the land of the free and the home of the brave. But you see, an independent spirit can open us up to a lot of other spirits. And what's interesting is that in this little group of uh, people that got told that night that they need to address some areas in their hearts, our real mission statement was mission T to the third power. I'm going way back, but it was transform lives, train leaders, and do team ministry. Now, Generation Jesus operated by that mission, but really it's sort of how we still operate church. We transform lives. We're training up people in the areas that they're strong in. We're doing team ministry. And so nothing really much has changed in that way. And so there's three things we need to do to stay on track so that we stay out of this trap of the enemy of having an independent spirit. Number one, avoid the influence. You know, they tell you don't if you, if you have a tendency towards some, something, stay away from people who do it. Avoid the influence. If we're around people who are full of rebellion, contention, and strife, we pick it up. We tend to just pick it up, and it's easy to adapt a similar attitude. I'll talk about John Maxwell in a few minutes. I'm going to share some of his stuff. But husbands and wives, I have seen positive husbands like, come into a marriage positive, but the wife tends to be a little bit negative, and they're like, oh, we're going to get her where she needs to be. Five years later, they're both negative. And I'm like, what just happened there? What just happened? See, I've seen people become critical because they hung out with critical people. They liked a thing, but then when they started hanging out with the wrong people, they started finding fault with everything about it. See, God's desire is for us to shed our weaknesses and for the people around us to help hone us into strength, for iron to sharpen iron. See, not for us to dull one another out. And so I've seen people healed Because they hung around people who talked about healing all the time, though. See, it works conversely. I've seen people become more prophetic just being in this church. I've seen people get free being around people who talk about the fact that, yes, you can be free. No, you don't have to live like that. No, you don't have to settle for that. And so it works both ways. And so we need to also pray specifically against any ungodly powers that we see operating in us or around us by name. Now, we've got to get specific. And see, sometimes we like to stay real broad because we don't want to really, we don't want to get to the root of a matter. But where God goes is to the root. Every root that he has not planted, he wants to pull out because roots bear fruit. And if you want the fruit to be gone, you've got to get to the root. And so if God shows you an area, he wants you to use that information not to feel bad about yourself not to go home and cry, not to feel like, oh, God said a mean thing to me. No, he wants you to use that information to defeat ungodly attitudes, habits, and strongholds. The more specific our prayer is, the more effective it tends to be. In the area of emotional healing and inner healing, and I hope you uh, are listening to the War on Soul Trouble series that I talked about last week. If you go, God, I just forgive everybody that's ever hurt me. That's, okay, that's a prayer. (laughs) That's a prayer. But how much more powerful it is to go, Lord, I forgive my mother the way she neglected us as children and didn't pay any mind to us, and it hurt me, and I judged her, God, and I forgive her for that, and I release her from that judgment. Now, that's not my mother, but I'm telling you, the difference in the specificness of the prayer has a great difference in the effectiveness of the answer. And so, We need to get specific because God is specific. See, God didn't just say, there's some things in y'all's heart y'all need to deal with. He told us just what it was. So we knew just where to go. Now, we can get God's heart on the matter. And when we do, we've got to do something else. And this is hard for people sometimes. We've got to hate what he hates and love what he loves. And some things are so entrenched in us in families, in churches, we don't know how to hate it because we feel like then we start hating the people. And God says, love the people. But see, we must be able to love people while we correctly identify and hate it because it's not God's. It's not what God's, it's not God's best. We love those people, but that area in them, ooh, we hate that for them. We hate that it's even in them. We hate what it does to them. We hate the way it holds them back. And so we want to be operating with the government of God, not against the government of God. Number three, we can live in the opposite spirit. You know, really, when Alan gave that testimony about the shrimp, about the panic attacks, what he did was just fight with the opposite spirit. Where the devil tried to bring fear, he just pushed against it. He went the opposite way. Oh, no. Oh, no, devil. You're not doing this to me. And so greed if you find that's an issue in your life, is fueled by, is killed by giving. Depression is run off by praise. Darkness is dispelled by light. Hate is counteracted by love and acts of kindness. So you can start doing the opposite of that thing that felt so natural that yet it's not God, and it's not God's government over your life, and you start doing the opposite. Now, a lot of people try to do the opposite by some grandiose act. And so, you know, we'll do okay, you know, I've been really hating people and let's do a foot washing. And so let's do a foot washing. And so every, you know, get the towels. Can anyone get a basin of water? And, and I'm not, you know, there's a beauty in that. And I've been to services that that is beautiful, but you know, you can wash those people's feet all day and still have a hate in your heart. And so there's people that want to do this grandiose act and go, now it's done. Oh, no, it's not done. It's done by everyday lifestyle choices. It's not done by one act and, and, you know, that just sort of was symbolic. And so as a lifestyle, we must always daily do warfare against the strongholds that have come against us, that have tried to entrench themselves in our life by opposing them or every, any part of them, and then pretty soon with that constant resistance on our part, we can break through and change the dynamic of the thing so much that all of a sudden we look around and we go, it's changed. Things are different. God transformed me. But see, it wasn't magic. (laughs) It wasn't instant. Sometimes there is an instant transformation, but many times what I've just explained to you is actually the way it comes. Now, The opposite, you know, I mentioned an independent spirit a while ago, and I talked about team ministry. The opposite of an independent spirit is a team spirit. And you know, you can read articles, and there's no I in team. John Maxwell has a lot of books on leadership. Ty isn't here today. I know he just went to John Maxwell's seminar. I know some people in the room uh, are students of John Maxwell's teachings, but Years ago, when we just first started, I just got all John Maxwell's books. And one of them is the 17 Indisputable Laws of Teamwork. And I have it right here today. And I ran off a few copies of some little quotes from it. But he has some brilliant principles. And see, sometimes we read the Bible and we just don't know how to put these things into play. And there are men that come along and they can just sort of add a little explanation and it helps us how to get there. And so John Maxwell talks about how attitudes are contagious. Attitudes are contagious, just like I said earlier. When a leader is upbeat in the face of discouraging circumstances, others admire that and want to be like that person. When a team member displays a strong work ethic, other people around them start to work more, and they put a value, a high priority, on work. People have a tendency to adopt the attitudes of those they spend time with. The story of Roger Bannister, you know who that is? Anybody in the room? Is an inspiring example of the way attitudes can compound. During the first half of the 20th century, many sports experts believed that no runner could ever run a mile in less than four minutes. That was just, everybody believed that. They were in agreement. And for a long time, they were actually right. But then, on May 6, 1954, I was two years old. A British runner and a university student named Roger Bannister ran a mile in three minutes, 59.4 seconds during a meet in Oxford. Less than two months later, another runner broke the record. Suddenly, dozens and then hundreds of people broke the record. Today, it's 3.43.3, I believe. 3.43. But see, for years, they thought you could not break four. Why? I mean, what happened? Were people eating different? Did a new exercise come along? New exercise closed to propel them? No, because the best runners' attitudes changed. It was attitude. They began to adopt the mindset and belief of their peers. Once Roger did it, it's like, oh, it can be done. If it can be done, then I can do it. See, that qualifies me. So Bannister's attitude and actions compounded when exposed to others, his attitude spread. Today, every world class runner who competes at that distance can run a mile in less than four minutes because attitudes are contagious. Attitudes are contagious. So it matters who you hang out with. It matters what the people around you are saying. It matters what you're listening to. Faith comes by hearing. The Bible says it, but we need to apply it in practical ways. Now, the only thing that's more contagious than a good attitude is a bad attitude. <laughs> Some people think that if they're negative and critical, they're smart, like they they can find what's wrong with everybody and everything. But the truth is that a negative attitude hurts us and it does not help the person who has it and it hurts people all around. A wise baseball manager once remarked that he never allowed the positive players to room with the negative ones uh, when they were on the road because when he created the team's assignments, he put the negative ones together so they couldn't poison anyone else. Sometimes you interact with somebody And you know that something's not quite right in their attitude, but you can't put your finger on it. And it's tricky because it seems like it's a subjective thing. And you can't really even name what you're feeling, but there's a concern that you might have. And so someone with a bad attitude may not do anything that you can name as illegal or unethical or immoral, but their attitude can still ruin the people around them just the same. And so people that have bad attitudes have a couple of things in common. Usually they have an inability to admit wrongdoing. So be quick to agree with God if he says something's wrong. They have a failure to forgive, always forgive, no matter what the, the, the thing that somebody did to you. They usually have jealousy operating at some level in their life. And they have what John Maxwell calls the disease of me, the disease of me. And see, the disease of me will always be the defeat of us, the defeat of us. And so I'll end with a couple of quick stories. Uh, Fred and Martha were driving home after a church service. Fred, Martha asked, did you notice that the pastor's sermon was kind of weak today? No, not really, answered Fred. Well, didn't you hear that the the band was sort of hitting some flat notes? They, They just really weren't in sync today. And he goes, no, I didn't, he responded. Well, you certainly must have noticed that young couple and their children in front of us with all the noise and commotion they were making the whole service. I'm sorry, dear, but no, I didn't. Finally, in disgust, Martha said, Fred, honestly, I don't even know why you bother to go to church. <laughs> Bad attitudes must be addressed, they will never go away on their own if they are left unaddressed. They will fester and ruin the whole. They will fester and ruin the team, along with its chances of reaching its potential. So if it's only your opinion that someone has a rotten attitude, then you can't address it, can you? Well, if you care about the team, maybe you can. Maybe you can. Attitude colors everything someone does. It determines how an individual sees the world and how they interact with others. I'll do one more story. One of the most remarkable stories John Maxwell says I've ever read that illustrates the law of the bad apple came out of the San Francisco Bay Area. Evidently, the principal of a school called in three teachers to inform them of an experiment that they were gonna do, the district was gonna conduct, and they were gonna be a part of it. Because you are the finest teachers in the system, she said, we're going to give you 90 selected high IQ students. We're going to let you move these students through the next year at their pace and see how much they can learn. The faculty and the students were both delighted. During the next year, it was wonderful. By the end of the semester, the students achieved 20 to 30 percent more than any other group of students in the whole area. After the year was completed, the principal called in the teachers, and she told them, I have a confession to make. I have to confess to you that you did not have 90 of the most intellectually prominent students. They were run-of-the-mill students. We took 90 students at random from the system and gave them to you. Well, the teachers were pleased because if the students were only average, that showed that they had displayed exceptional skill and expertise. I have another confession, the principal said. You're not the brightest of the teachers. (laughs) Your names were the first three names drawn out of a hat. So if the students and the teachers had been picked only at random, what had enabled them to make such greater progress than everybody else in the system? It was the attitudes of the people involved because the teachers and the students both expected to succeed. Expected to succeed. Easy always said, attitude affects your altitude. John always says, Jesus changes everything. So if we have the attitude that Jesus can change everything, nothing is impossible in our midst. Nothing is too hard for him. Everything we have asked of him that is according to his will, he will do. And the revival that we are walking into will affect many. But when they come in, let them make sure that the attitude they get, if you're standing near them, if you're talking to them, if you're hanging around them, is the attitude of the government of God. Stand to your feet with me. Father, we thank you. We thank you, Lord. We thank you, Lord. Oh, we thank you, God. We thank you. We pray right now for people, north, south, east, and west, that need to be in this place. We thank you for people that need to be under the sound of your word. We thank you for people that need to have a relationship with you and be set free from the things of the world that have held them captive for decades and decades. God, give us the attitude that we can witness. Give us the attitude that we can speak to people about Jesus. Give us the attitude that when we share our testimony, people will listen. And so, Father, I thank you right now that we want to be governed by you in all of our ways. We want the government that's on your shoulders to increase in our lives, in our hearts, God. And so right now, we just give you permission to go into every area of our heart, to reveal to us any ungodly attitude, anything that needs to change, any way that we've been an independent spirit, God, that's, that's, that's pushing against your purpose possibly. possible, for our life. And so right now, Lord, I just thank you. I thank you that you speak, Lord Jesus. You spoke to me on the edge of a bed. You spoke in my heart and you revealed truth to me. Lord, I ask that you would reveal reveal truth in our inward man, every person in this room. Reveal truth to us, God, and the truth will make us free so that we can exponentially bring your freedom to everyone around us. And everybody said amen and amen.